and something that's scary to actually admit, but something I haven't done in a long time. I'm just going to preach from the Bible. Is that okay? You know what I mean. We've been looking at things from the Bible every night, but we're not going to use a handout tonight. Does, yeah, there you go. Does anyone have a Bible? Did, did, should I have announced to bring it? We're only going to look at a few verses, so it'd be all right. If I say the same, will you stay at home? Or if I say different, will you come? There, every one of them is going to be different. Maybe. Because they never come out the same twice. But, um, but no, some of them will be the same. Some will be different. I have been implored upon by the Redwood group to please share something different. And so, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah, some of them will be different. Enough of this love, love stuff, Herb. So I'm going to go back to my Baptist roots at Redwood and just let them have it. No, I'm just kidding. Some of you are like, I'm not going to Redwood then. No, it'd be all right. Pray for Redwood this year. We're, we're going to have a good time there. Yeah, that's right. Well, I want to end this week. How many of you had a blessed week? How many thankful you came to Camp Ming? It's all right. You can do that. Marilyn, I know this is putting you on the spot, and I probably shouldn't do this in public. But would it be possible? Is Daryl already gone? Is Jared already gone? I tell you what, preacher gets up and the band leaves. Bunch of heathens. I mean, Daryl and Jared, that's who I'm talking about. If they're still around, would you guys be willing to do one more song tonight before we quit? Just when we're done? I know that means you guys have to stick around and listen to me, but... I'm going to let you pick it. You pick it. I have the utmost trust in your ability to pick songs that are appropriate or applicable or whatever the... It's a blank check, so don't hurt me. I tell you what, I do a lot of venues within a year and there's not one venue that I enjoy more than working with Vendon and his group here Amen. Yeah. I, I know the comments I know the stuff about the stuff but I tell you what there are a few people that I've met that have a walk with Jesus like what I encounter behind the scenes with this group and so I'm just thankful for them this evening thank you for making this a blessing for me this week Ephesians 5 let's begin there shall we pray as we're turning our pages precious Heavenly Father tonight I give this time to you and once again far be it from us to ask any more from you this week you have given so much Father you have blessed us all through our life, you've taken care of us. And all throughout history, you've given us so much, even of yourself. You have emptied heaven for each one of us. So tonight, Lord, may it be about you. Father, we're giving you this time. You do with it what you want in each of our hearts. In your precious name we pray all this. Amen. We're going to end this week where we began a week ago. 
a week and a day ago. Ephesians, if, you're not, if you do have your Bible and you're not familiar with where that's at, it just remember General Electric Power Company. Can you remember that? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Get to Romans and keep moving and you'll find it. If, <laughs> that's right, it's in the Old Testament. Ephesians chapter 5. Man, I'm going to miss you guys. You don't know, I'm, looking, I'm so looking forward to seeing my family again. But I really am going to miss you guys. It has been just a good, good week. And I love your guts. Thanks, George. Kudos. You know, I use these handouts now. And my Bible's on my computer now with all the original languages. I got to this evening and thought, you know, I, I want to just preach from the Bible. And then God said to me, Herb, you don't have a Bible. And so thanks, George, for loaning me yours. Your wife gave it to me while you weren't looking. Thank you. Thank you. That holds meaning. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be followers of God. Be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. Imitate God. Does that mean something to you now at the end of the week? More than what it did at the beginning? Imitate God. Do what He does. And learn to live a life of love. As Christ also loved us and has given Himself to us. Go with me if you have your Bibles to 1 Peter 4. We didn't look at this, this verse last week, but this verse is becoming increasingly more and more significant to me with each passing month. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. The end of all things is at hand. Are there any Seventh-day Adventists in the room? Yeah. Have you ever heard a sermon on the imminent return of Jesus? Oh, yeah. Jesus is about to return. How many believe that? And, and think about it. Have you ever heard that sermon before with a, therefore, we should fill in the blank? And we've heard a million sermons almost within the Adventist church about Jesus is about to return. So, therefore, whatever that means. And if we stop and think about it, if you knew Jesus was coming back a year from now, if you knew that for sure, are there certain things that you would become more, I don't know what the proper word is, not aware of, not cautious of, yeah, you'd become more diligent about it, you'd give it some more attention, you'd be more serious about it. What are some of those things? If you need Jesus to come back in the next 12 months, what things would you become more serious about in your life? Bible study? You'd, you'd quit work. Well, heavens don't do that yet. Some of you, that's happened to you this year without your choice. But yeah, maybe stop watching TV, maybe. Share with family members. Love your neighbor. What else? Any other ideas? What would you become more zealous about? Bible study, witnessing. Spending more time with Jesus, more earnest time with Jesus. How many, of all, how many in your Adventist life have heard these sermons before? Jesus is coming back, so get more serious about all the stuff we've just talked about. It is sad for me to admit that I too have heard those sermons 
But I have never heard from an Adventist pulpit what I'm about to share with you. It breaks my heart. Because Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. This is an Adventist sermon. Be serious and watchful in your prayers, but above all things. How many things? How many things? All things. That means above how diligently you observe the Sabbath. Above how many hours you put into Bible study. Above whether or not you watch television. Above whether or not you even share your faith or witness. Above how many things? What does that say to you? What Peter is about to say, he is zeroing in and saying, this right here is the most important thing. And it blows me away what he says. The end of all things is at hand. Above all things, may your love for one another be intense. Wow. Wow. Above how many things? It is a sad state of affairs that when studies are done on a local level of many of our churches, we are healthy in a lot of areas. But do you know what? One single area we continually, church after church that I visit, the results are always the same when they have been tested, what comes back on these studies is that the one area they are the weakest in every time. Do you know what it is? Love and loving relationships. Why is that? And you know, it's actually... It's been diagnosed... It's not just us. Churches that feel they have been raised for the purpose of, of being the doctrinal watchguards of planet Earth. Do you know what I mean by that? Churches that believe that, denominations in history that have held that as their mission. Every time they are the weakest in loving and lovable relationships. Isn't that interesting? That we're not an anomaly. I'm not saying once again that our doctrines aren't important. But there's going to be a lot of people in heaven that needed their doctrine fixed. Amen? And it never got there. But there won't be anyone there who rejected the spirit and laws of love. By which to live their life. Are you hearing me tonight? Above all things, may your love for one or one another be intense. I was doing a series of meetings in a little church in West Virginia once, long time ago, and I walked away from that weekend. Can I? Can I admit this to you without you thinking that I'm just looking for sympathy? Because I'm not. I'm all right with this. What I'm about to tell you, I'm all, right, I'm all right with. There are some churches you walk into that when you leave at the end of the weekend, you're a little black and blue. You're a little bloody from the encounter. 
Sometimes you go in and you're seeking to be an agent of change on a heart level with people in, in regards to their picture of God. And so for some congregations, change does not come easily. And I'm sorry, they usually not only take it out on the message, but they take it out on the messenger. Anyone ever witnessed that before? Some people say, Herb, I'd love to do what you do. Just travel around to churches and tell people God loves them. Oh, are you sure? Because I'm only doing it because God asked me to. Amen. Trust me. There's a liability. There's another side to it. I have walked away from some churches, as I said earlier this week, and I have honestly felt in my heart, God, this was intense this weekend. I can't wait for the day when people leave my little local church where I fellowship at I'm a member there I can't wait till they walk away and say wow I've never been loved like I have by those people that was intense that's what God wants does that mean we throw out the importance of having doctrinal accuracy no but we understand that that is the means to the end not the end of all things it's how we get to the goal. It's not the goal. The goal is to understand whom? God. And through that knowledge, His love awaken in our hearts love too for our fellow man. And if the love for one another is not intense among us as a church, I would like to encourage you this evening, it's not because we need to understand the state of the dead better. And it's not because of the multitude of other issues in our church. It's because although we are clear on many things, we are still to a large degree unclear on what is in the heart of God for us. We don't have that assurance yet. We have it intellectually, some of us. But it is a rare thing. Is there anyone here this week that's felt on a heart level you would desire a greater encounter with God and His love for you. This On a heart level, we crave that. James chapter 1, 27 is where we're going, but we're going to start with some of the context. James chapter 1. James is after Hebrews, which is almost in the middle of the New Testament. It's like the Psalms of the Old Testament, almost in the middle. James 1, we'll pick up in verse 26. It says, if any one of you thinks he is religious. I, I just like that phrase. James says, if any of you think you're really religious, because there's a lot of people I've met in my 88, someone do the math, 88, 2010, 22 years? Is that how long it's been? I've been an Adventist for 22 years? Wow. Some of you are saying, that's nothing. Well, I know it's nothing to you, but man, that's more than half my lifetime now. It won't be one day, but right now it is. I have met a lot of people during my journey and through, this, through the halls of this church that thought they were very religious people. Now, when I started out, people thought that they were very religious if they were... No, not vegetarians. No, that was 1950s. That wasn't enough. By the time we got to the 80s, 
you're religious if you not only didn't eat meat, you didn't eat anything that came from an animal. Just take it all out. That's the word, but I don't want to say it because I think for some people that is a healthier option. And if God's calling you to be that, there's nothing wrong with that. But that doesn't make you religious. Are you hearing me what I'm saying? That just makes you a vegan. doesn't make you religious. It just makes you a vegan. It's a different term. Got it? They're different. As a kid, I was introduced to a summer, in a summer camp to, I remember somebody coming to our summer camp and doing a whole thing on rock and roll for seven days. So we were convinced that to be religious meant burning your deep purple records. And some of you don't know who that is and you're better off. It's, uh, and so, you know, that's what it meant to be religious. You listen to, and I couldn't figure that out for the longest time. I mean, honestly, I couldn't, the whole music issue, I still don't have figured out. Can I just be honest? You ask me, well, what's appropriate music or not? And Herb, what are you thinking? I don't know. I don't know. I, the Bible doesn't have notes and sing, and, and I, I don't know. But I'll tell you my history with it. I was so frustrated over this issue as a teenager that I went for a whole year without listening to any music. I mean, even in church when they would sing a hymn, I was going to be consistent. So I'd get up and walk out. People think, is Herb upset? No, he's just weird. <laughs> so when they got done singing, <laughs> she snorted. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I do that too when I get tickled. <laughs> That's great. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you. I'll point you out. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, yeah. You're out of batteries. Sorry about that. Hold that thought. Careful now. <laughs> you didn't sing music. Gary, you're one of the few people I'd let do that. <laughs> Marilyn, watch out. No, just kidding, just kidding. Laugh, don't take it so serious. I couldn't figure it out, so I didn't listen to hymns, I didn't listen to scripture songs, I didn't listen to contemporary music, I didn't listen to nothing. I thought, I'm going to figure this out. I didn't listen to nothing. Well, it took me a whole year, and I still don't have it figured out. But I thought that's what it meant to be religious. Can I be extremely honest? In my heart of hearts, without God in my life, I'm still a real jerk. And I've been focused on a lot of different stuff in my religious walk. But never have I had the burden on my heart as it has been over the, next, over the last 12 months. That really what it means to be religious is about all that stuff. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans. And widows in their trouble. And to keep oneself unspotted from the world. 
We have our own definitions of what it means to be of the world, do we not? We say we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. That's right. What does that even mean? I mean, it, it it can't be about diet. Because I got atheist friends that are stricter in their diet than I will ever be. It can't be about music. Because I have friends on the whole spectrum that listen to all kinds of different kinds of music on both sides of it. But they still have the same base thing wrong inside of them. Are you hearing me? Can't be that. Can't be dress. It can't be dress. I'm sorry. And I don't want to create any problems here tonight. That's a hot issue in my local church right now. What's dangling from different parts? And I got friends who have stuff in parts of their body that I don't even want to think about. I mean, they got stuff all over them. They got ink all over their skin. They don't go to our church because they're not welcome in my church. I'm not saying by me. I'm just saying that's how they feel when they show up. But they're out on the streets. Visiting orphans and helping widows in their trouble. I got in touch with a friend of mine this morning just to say hi. I check in with him from time to time just to see how he's doing. He's a chaplain for the Hells Angels. Some say they have chaplains. Well, somebody's got to marry and bury him. And he meets the kind of people that you and I wouldn't have the credibility to talk to. Are you, talk, are you hearing me? Nor would we have the courage. <laughs> I called him up and he believes in the Sabbath. I called him up. I said, you playing hooky today or are you being faithful? And he, he said, well, Herb, I'm not being too faithful today. I'm not going to church today. I said, really, what you up to? He said, man, I just spent the last 48 hours with a deaf and dumb meth user who two weeks ago had a syringe filled with antifreeze ready to end it all. He says, I'm heading up to his house today. Because he says sometimes it takes us to get to some pretty bad places before we'll turn to God. He's turning and I want to be there for him. Although I think that's all right to play hooky on that excuse, right? He called me. I was in Louisiana a few weeks back, and he called me up. He said, man, I just got to give you this testimony. I said, what is it? He said, I just had, he was raised in Adventist. He said, I just had a class reunion when I went back, and he said, man, my my classmates, they look awful. I said, well, dude, you're not too cute yourself. (laughs) You really don't want to be my friend. 
He said, but man, they're rough. I said, well, I mean. He said, but I just want to tell you something. She said, he said, I bumped into one of my old classmates. And he, he said, she just looks like she's had a hard life. And these are the kind of people he witnesses to. I mean, I went and did some meetings for him once and sitting out in the audience. I'd never preached to this crowd before. Sitting out in the audience was the biggest meth dealer in all the whole county who just given his heart to Jesus and was trying to walk away from all that. And although he'd walked away from the, the chemical, the, the people in the lifestyle were what were harder for him to get away from. He had recovering porn stars in the audience. That makes us uncomfortable, but they were sitting right there. They'd accepted Jesus too. And I thought, man, how do you reach these people, man? Well, he called me when I was in Louisiana and said, well, I just bumped into one of my classmates. She's a meth addict. She's been clean for two years. And I said, wow, that's great. What, what, what brought about the change? He said, well, that's why I'm calling you, Herb. Somebody gave her a series of your sermons. She said she encountered in those sermons the God she was always looking for. And she just, he said something happened inside of her and she didn't have to go back to that stuff anymore. I've seen a lot of stuff happen in the decade that I've been doing this. But that amazes me. That the gospel can even affect people on a chemical, biological level. And this guy, if he were to show up here tonight in his leathers, he did that once. It was here in Arizona. I was doing a series of meetings, and he showed up to the church with about two or three of his biker friends and walked in just to see what the church would do. And I thought, oh, God, have mercy. I was so impressed. Those people just welcomed them in. They came to me and they said, listen, uh, we know you're coming home with us for lunch today, but would you mind if these, these bikers that just showed up came home to lunch with us? They didn't know we knew each other and had set it up. I said, well, I guess I'm going to broaden my horizons. <laughs> they, they, they forgave us once they found out we knew each other. But in most places, I, I just, what is it going to take? What does it mean to really not, to be in the world, but not of the world? Because these people, they've got all the stuff that as I was growing up was defined as being in the world. But I have a hard time saying they're of the world. I have a hard time saying that. Jesus said it best in Matthew 24. What does it mean to be unspotted from the world? Remember to, to stay un, unsullied, to be pure, to be in the world but not of it. What does that mean? I think Jesus defines it. In Matthew 24, verse 12 and 13, it says, Because of iniquity, because iniquity will abound. And what is iniquity at its core? Talk to me. What is sin at its core? What is it? What is love at its core? We talked about it all week. Please tell me I didn't waste my time. Yeah, it's other-centeredness. Yeah. 
It's other-centeredness. So what is iniquity? What is sin at its core? Those are the two great principles around which everything else is battling for the mastery, is it not? Self-centeredness versus other-centeredness. And Jesus said, because, other, because self-centeredness will abound, he said, the other-centeredness of many will grow cold. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's just as true. As surely as love awakens love, self-centeredness awakens self-centeredness, does it not? I mean, when someone's nice to you, do you remember what we covered this week? When someone's nice to you, what does that make you want to do? Be nice back to them. But when someone's mean to you, I know you have good Christian reputations to protect, but be honest. When someone wrongs you and is mean to you, what does that awaken inside of you and make you want to do? Don't you honestly want to pounce back? And now growing up, I'm not big enough to pounce back. But I'd lay into you with my tongue. Do you know what that means? But it's some kind of recourse. Well, Jesus said the self-centeredness of the world is going to abound. It's going to increase right before he returns. And because of that, the other-centeredness of this world is going to grow cold. It's going to be almost wholly extinguished. Do you sense that happening on planet Earth these days? Well, what does it really mean then to be in the world but not of the world? The love of many will grow cold, but he whose love endures to the end shall be saved. Isn't that what it's talking about? And it really does work. I have yet to have one of my non-Christian friends say, you know, you guys go to church on Saturday. That's so different. Why do you do that? I have yet to hear them say that. But do you know what they have said? And maybe this is a more postmodern thing. But you know what they have asked me? They said, Herb, we know a lot of people. But we have never met anyone like you and your wife. What is so weird about you guys? What is it that's different? I said, well, are you talking about me or my wife? (laughs) (laughs) But really, the people that are out there aren't used to people watching out from them and sacrificing themselves for them and, and putting them first, even if there's nothing in it for you. They're not used to that kind of treatment. You going the extra mile and not wanting anything in return. They're not used to that. What does that mean? That pure and undefiled religion before God is taking care of orphans, widows, and staying unspotted from the world. Doesn't it really mean that when everyone else around you is living a self-centered life, That you keep your eyes not on how they're treating you, but on how much God loves you. And you allow His love for you to continually awaken in you other-centeredness back towards Him and towards everyone around you. And that's going to make you look a little odd, is it not? But I would love for the day to come when the reason people call us odd is not because we don't eat pigs. But because of how we treat each other. Well, it's only going to happen, I believe, if we understand the core of what we were raised to preach to the world. We are known by those outside of our ranks for many things. But we are to be known first and foremost 
for something very specific, she said. And we're not there yet. And do you know what she said that was to be? What were seventh, she names us, what were seventh day Adventists to be first and foremost before the world as being known for? Presenting Jesus to the world. Jesus was on the cross for how many hours? Do you remember from this week? Six. Now, if you go to the Gospels and you look, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, during those six hours, the first three hours are meticulously laid out for us in detail. The last three hours... The scriptures are strangely silent. There's no description of what happened. All we know in those last three hours is the very last few moments where Jesus said, It is my God, my God, why have you? And into thy hands I commend my spirit. That's all we know about three hours. How long did it take me to just say that? It was less than 60 seconds, was it not? There are three hours of time there still unaccounted for. Everything you know about the cross happened in the first three hours. And the reason I think that is, is because I believe that during those first three hours, Jesus' suffering was primarily physical. How many agree tonight that Jesus suffered something physically on the cross? Yes. Yeah. But Jesus not only suffered something physical, he also suffered something very psychological and emotional. If you agree with that tonight, say yes. And I think that the first three hours were primarily physical. And then during the last three, there was a transition where his psychological and emotional pain became so great that it almost wholly eclipsed what he was suffering during the first three hours. Well, why is there this difference in explanation or description? Well, the first three hours, could the disciples say this is what they're doing to him right now? This is what is happening to his body. Could they say that? But in the last three hours, could they write down this is what he's feeling right now? No. And there's only one place in the Bible, and I would love for more. There's only one place in the Bible that I have found that actually expounds upon what Jesus suffered during those last three hours. And it's not in the four Gospels. It's a Messianic song, Psalm tucked right there, I believe, in Psalms 88. If you have your Bibles, turn there. We're not going to read from it yet, but just turn there and get ready. Psalms chapter 88. For those of you who are unfamiliar with, with a, what a mess, I do speak for a living. What a messianic psalm is, it's a psalm that not only speaks of David's experience, but also prophesies of what the Messiah would go through. Psalms 88 is where I want you to have your thumbs and open to. Now, it's interesting to note that during the first three hours, Jesus looked over at the thief on the cross beside him and he said, You will be, what did he say? With me, where? So we have to be honest with that, do we not? I mean, during the first three hours, where did Jesus see himself ending up when all was said and done? In paradise. I don't know how you can get around that. During the first three hours, I am sorry, but Calvary was just a bad weekend trip. It was going to be over on Sunday. And where was he going to be? In paradise. With this guy beside him. But something's very different when we get to the end of the last three hours. Jesus is no longer saying you'll be with me in paradise. 
Something has happened. Is there anyone here tonight, once again, that's ever sinned? When you sin, is there anyone here that's ever felt as if God were far away from you because of that? Anyone here ever wrestled with those feelings? I want to ask you, is that really because God has pulled away? Or is that the intrinsic results? Remember the terminology I'm using. Is that the intrinsic results of the guilt and shame you're feeling as a result of your sin? I would contest that actually when you feel like God is furthest away, that's really when in reality he's the closest. Because that's when you need him the most. Amen? And so he's right there. And as Jesus was on the cross and he took your sin upon himself, do you think your sin affected him any differently? Did your sin make him feel like God was far away? Now, I don't believe for a second that God really forsook his son at the cross. Paul is very clear. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. God was there. But was Jesus aware of it at this point? What was he feeling psychologically and emotionally? He was feeling separation. Was there a genuine separation? Was he really forsaken? No, but did he feel separated? Did he feel far away? Yes. As a matter of fact, the term that is used is a sense of separation from the Father. He felt guilt. He felt responsible. He felt shame. And it was at that moment that Jesus uses these words. Bow down your ear, O Lord. Ooh, that's the wrong verse. O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles. I'm in trouble, God. My life draws near to the grave. I am numbered with those who go down to the pit. Was Jesus numbered with the transgressors? I am like a man who has no strength. I have been forsaken among the dead. Did Jesus feel forsaken of God? And he said, like the slain who lie in the grave. And this will mean something to you as Adventists. Whom you remember no more. For they are cut off forever from your hand. That is a powerful verse. He had just said a few hours previously, you'll be with me in paradise. How did he get from there to now feeling that if he saved you? Does anyone else catch the permanence in that? How did he get there? First of all, I believe that Satan was present at the cross. How many believe that? You realize as Adventists, you don't have a Bible verse to prove that. But nonetheless... We have other inspired sources that we like to base some things on. Satan was, I believe Satan was present. It just makes sense to me. I, you know, if I, if I were him, I'd have been there. And so Satan was present. And I believe that Satan pressed close to the heart of Jesus. Especially during these last three hours. And he began to whisper to Jesus, Jesus, you don't understand. If you go through with this, sin is so hateful to a holy God that this is going to separate you from him forever. Now, part of that was true. Is sin hateful to a holy God? Yes. 
God hates sin with a hatred as strong as death. If you agree, say yes. But God loves the sinner with a love that is stronger than death. Amen? But that part he left out. And we sometimes leave that part out too. When we start feeling bad about something we've done, don't we sometimes feel as if the way God feels towards our sin is the way he feels towards us too for sinning? Anyone ever been caught in that? We too forget that although God hates what we've done, he loves us nonetheless in spite of it. Isn't that true? He's not blind to our sin. He knows everything there is to know about us and yet loves us anyway. That's an incredible God. But we don't feel that way when we're in the midst of feeling all that guilt and shame. Isn't that true? So here's Jesus with your guilt and shame feeling the same way if, that sin is so hateful to a holy God that this is going to separate him from God for how long? Forever. In other words, this is goodbye to life forever. Like the slain who lie in the grave, whom Riz remembered. What does it say? Now, when you and I die, we have a hope that when Jesus comes back, we'll be remembered. Amen? What do we call that hope? The hope of the? My question is, did Jesus have that hope at that moment when he was on the cross? Now, don't misunderstand me. Would Jesus be resurrected? Yes, but just like what we said previous, was Jesus forsaken? But did he feel forsaken? Was Jesus going to be resurrected? But did he feel at this moment like he was going to be? No. Do you understand what was happening on an emotional level inside of Jesus? And some will say, well, Herb, did Jesus die the second death or did he die the first death? And they have a real hard time with this whole Jesus died the second death concept because from the second death there is no resurrection and Jesus was... And we get so technical and, and, and really kind of foolish, I'm sorry, on this. I don't care. I don't know how to answer some of those objections. But it doesn't matter to me whether he really did or whether he didn't. Do you know what it only matters? What did he feel like he was dying? Are you hearing me? And that we can all agree on. Did he feel like he was dying a death in which he'd be remembered no more, that this was permanent? And this is what makes all the difference in the Adventist understanding of the cross. This is why I am not just a Christian, but an Adventist right here. It's not because of anything else in our doctrinal beliefs. But it's this right here. It was at this moment that I believe Satan stepped forward when Jesus was feeling like if he saved me, it was goodbye to life forever. That I believe he presented three things before Jesus' mind and heart. Write these down. The first thing was all the adoration of the angels. All the adoration of the who? The angels. That reuniting embrace with his father and the, uh, all the glories of heaven. You've read these statements too. All the glories of heaven, the reuniting embrace with his father, and all the adoration of the angels. And he began to compare those three things. The glories of heaven, the adoration of the angels, the reuniting embrace with his father. He began to compare all of that with the prospect of saving me. And he began to contrast them and say, if you save Herb Montgomery, you are going to have to say goodbye to those three things. You will never have that reuniting embrace with your father again. You will never see him again. All the glories of heaven all the adoration of the angels. And then he compared what is the most painful for me in my thoughts on the cross. 
He compared all the adoration of the angels. I believe with all my heart, with all the times that Herb Montgomery would fail to give him the adoration he deserves. And he said, are you really going to trade that for that? I have to stand before you tonight and confess that I have not made Jesus' time on the cross easier in my life. I've made it much harder. Are you really going to trade them for that? And then he began to whisper, Jesus, if you go through with this, if you save that young man, it will come at an eternal loss to yourself. Jesus, save yourself. Let it come at his eternal loss. Don't be foolish, Jesus. Save yourself. All day long, those two words had been echoed over and over to him. If you're the Messiah, then what does he say? Save yourself. And as we come down to the end, and Satan was whispering, save yourself. Save yourself. Save yourself. I believe that all of this feeling of separation culminated. And Jesus looked into all the glories of heaven. And he seriously pondered what he was about to do. I can't help but believe that. And then he looked at me. And brothers and sisters, I don't know how to explain this. But when the God of this universe looked at me, something inside of his heart Surged. And he looked back at all the glories of heaven. And he said, heaven is not a place. Even heaven is not a place that I desire to be if that young man will not be there. And if it means either me being there or him, if it's saving myself at his eternal loss or saving him at mine, Something inside of his heart for me was so strong that it caused him to reach out in utter self-abandonment for me and say, I will save my vote is cast. I will save that young man. This is my decision. I will save that young man at any cost to myself. And he bowed his head and he died for me. I was doing a series of meetings for kindergartners of all people. I used to tell God I will go wherever I'm invited. That has an appendix now. There, there has been an amendment to the Constitution. Kindergartners are the hardest people to reach with theology. And the reason is because it doesn't matter to them. There's only three things that matter to them. Recess. Lunch. And whether or not they have to use the bathroom right now. Those are the three things that matter to a kindergartner. That's it. And their nap, yes. No, that's not important to them. That's important to you that they have a nap. They don't care. They want to play all day. 
Well, they were having a contest. This was around Thanksgiving time. They were having a contest, and I was racking my brain this. I mean, talk about stretching you as a person, trying to present some of these grand ideas on a kindergarten level. That is painful. Are you hearing me? That hurts. But they were having a contest, and whoever won this contest, they got the only piece of the Thanksgiving pumpkin pie for the party that was happening right before Thanksgiving break. And some of you think, ugh, that would not have worked for me. It did for them. I mean, they were so into getting the pie. They were all competing. And I said, now listen, let's say you won the pie. And all of them said, yeah. But your teacher said you could pick one person in the classroom to share this pie with. I said, how much would you have to like someone in your school with you? How much would you have to like them in order to share with them your piece of pie? And one little boy, he said, oh, I'd have to like them a lot. (laughs) I said, well, let's say you want it. But the teacher gave you, instead of doing that, they changed the rules and they gave you the option to let the person of your choosing have the pie instead of you if you would like that. They all went, (gasps) I said, how much would you have to like one of your peers then? And one of them piped up and said, well, I just wouldn't do that. (laughs) But even as adults, we can understand the difference between the God of this universe dying to spend eternity with us like the thief on the cross. Or when it came down to you in the end, dying so that you could have heaven instead of him. Is that a much different scenario? Is that a much different love? I'm telling you, as I look at Calvary, there are a lot of influences that I've had in my life, both good and bad. But I've never experienced anything that influences me with the impact of what I see the God of this universe willing to do for me at the cross. I have been loved by many people on this planet. There's a lot of people that like me. I don't know why, but they do. But I have never met one person that was willing to give me their spot in heaven and let me go instead of them. I have been touched by many things, but I have never been touched like how I am when I look at the cross. That the God of this universe would look down with his own eternity being in jeopardy and say, I will save Herb Montgomery at any price to myself. He is of so much significantly more value to me than anything that's in this for me. I have friends. I told you about some of those friends. Anybody here once again do Facebook? Anybody here do Facebook? Anybody here? Some of you do. I know it's the wrong age group. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, okay. Some of you guys do Facebook. If you don't do Facebook, don't start, Okay. <laughs> It's a sick trick. Matter of fact, I realized today why I started doing Facebook. And Daryl, this may come as a shock to you, but it's your fault. It is really your fault. 
Daryl got a group of my friends into Facebook, and my friend said, Herb, you need to be on Facebook. And I thought, what's Facebook? That was the dumbest question I've ever asked in my life. But I, and I'll tell you why Facebook is, is dangerous for me. Once again, I have friends that are not like you and I. Someone had to leave early this week, and they said, Herb, are you on Facebook? And I'm always afraid to tell them because I know if, they say, if I say yes, then they're going to go online. They're going to, you know, they're going to find me because there's only one other Herb Montgomery on Facebook, and he's black. <laughs> and I have a lot of friends that are black, but that ain't me. So you go in there and you, you know, request me to be your friend and, you know, I love you guys, okay? This does not apply to you. But you realize if someone requests to be my friend, it really doesn't matter if I know them or not. I have to say yes. That's part of my job description, right? You're a preacher. You have to be nice to everyone. <laughs> So, yes, you can be my friend. And then they go on there, and all of a sudden they see sometimes some of the comments that are posted by folks like Jared. No, just kidding. Jared's pretty, pretty behaved in public. I've shared a room with Jared this week. That has been an adventure. Whether you're closer to the second coming or not, I am. It sure does beat a hotel room. Hint. <laughs> no, just kidding, Gary. <clears throat> but sometimes people will go on there and they'll see things on my Facebook that my heathen friends post to me. Do you know what that means? They do not have the same moral compass that you and I have. And stuff will come out of their mouth that they are not afraid to put into print. And so they just post it right on there. And then people will email me and say, Herb, do you see what's happening on your Facebook page? Are you aware? And I'll go online and honestly, I wasn't. <gasps> and the meter for monthly donations in the ministry starts to go down. Well, to each their own. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. That's very nice. It's just the reality of how it works. But if you're going to reach out to people in the world, man, you can't expect them to be where you're at. You've got to meet them where they're at. Amen? And some of these people don't view things the way you and I do. They are very different. They look at what I do and they scratch their head. They say, what do you do for work again? They have no, they've never had a preacher. Do you catch this? They have never had a preacher hang out with them, much less enjoy it. I mean, they are totally, it is a paradigm shift for them, for someone who's religious to them, who loves God and goes to church, and not just goes to church, but is a preacher. It is, it is huge for them to say, why are you hanging out with me, is what one of them said. Why are you always here? And I said, well, because I love you. They didn't know what to make of that. Still trying to get their head around it. But I had them send me down a couple years ago. And one of them was 
quite intent on changing my mind. You have to understand, in, in the South, we are motivated to be a Christian in the South. And I know this is a stereotype, it's a blanket statement. But in the South, we are largely motivated to be a Christian because hell hurts and heaven's made of golden big houses. That's basically why you want to be Christian. There are more people in the South that have accepted heaven than Jesus. It's just how it works. <laughs> he said, what if, Herb, I just got a question for you. What if... There is no heaven and there is no hell. Just what if, Herb? What if this life is all you've got? What if all the time you spend away from your family out there preaching, what if it's for nothing, Herb? What if it's all a waste? What if there is no heaven, is no hell, you got one run at it and it's over? Doesn't that ever concern you? And I looked at him and I had to honestly say, not that much. They said, what? Why? And I had the privilege of sitting down with them and sharing with them the story of the cross. Amen. And how my God made some pretty monumental decisions for me. When he felt like there was no heaven in it for him. When he felt like this life was all he was going to get. But I was worth it for him. And so I looked at my friend and I said, and my friend was in tears. I said, I've never seen self-abandonment like this. He said, I haven't either. I said, I've never seen such selflessness like this. I've never seen such extravagant waste. I mean, what if I had said no? He'd have still done it. People say that Jesus would have died for only one. That's a lie. Jesus would have died for none. Because he, he didn't die for you because you would have responded. Whether you responded or not, he died for you because he loves you. That's what compelled him. Whether you would ever accept what he had done for you or not, he could not help but die for you because of what was in his heart. And so I said to my friend, even if there is no heaven... Even if there is no hell, even if there's nothing in it for me, even if I get nothing in return for any of this, my God, the God that I serve, not the God that you found in those churches you've had bad experiences in, the God that I'm telling you about is so beautiful and so precious to me. He has truly won my heart at the heart level. That even if I get nothing back for all of this, and when I come to my life, into my life, this is it. Still, nonetheless, even if there is no heaven, even if there is no hell, my God is so beautiful. He is just worthy of somebody loving him the way that he has loved us. He said, I never looked at it like that before. He's a Christian now, by the way. He didn't know what to make of you guys or me. He still thinks we're weird because we don't eat pigs. That's his hang-up. We're from the South. He says, you don't eat pepperoni? No, but Jesus died for you. He said, no, I got that part. <laughs> anyway, he's growing. And I am too. 
But I think about Calvary. As we've looked at the cross tonight, is there anybody here who that would be willing to admit that at certain points of tonight's talk, you felt something happening in your heart as you... It's just a momentary glance. What we understand of the cross comes in rapid bursts and it fades ever so quick, always, does it not? But as we have caught glimpses of God tonight, if this is really what God is like, if what you see at the cross is the truth about what God is like, is there anybody here that would be willing to admit tonight that you've had something happen on an emotional level at some point of tonight's talk? Some part of the story of the cross affected you this evening. Is there anybody here that would have the courage, and I know everybody's looking, there's no other way to do it in a congregation. Is there anybody here that would have the courage to just give me one word tonight, what it was you felt? Anybody? Love? Freedom? Thankfulness? Astonishment. Anybody just stand there and say, wow, really? That's how you feel about me? Any hope? Yeah. I don't care who you are tonight or where you come from or what your story is. There is hope for you. Are you hearing me? The God of this universe loves your guts. He loves your socks off. He doesn't care where you've been. He just cares where you're going. Amen? Anything else people have felt tonight? Peace? Serene? Rest? Security? It is assuring to be loved with a love that won't let go in the face of all odds. Amen? He proved that there is nothing that will make him let go. If you are lost at last, you are going to have to pry literally your heart out of his cold, dead hand. Are you hearing me? He will not let go. You are going to have to do it if you're going to be lost. That is not what he's about. Anything else you felt? Forgiveness. Anybody here felt forgiven by God tonight? Anything else? Ashamed. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm there with you. I look at the cross and I say, and I know I'm not supposed to admit this because of who I am and what I do. But every time I look at the cross, I think, man, I should be living differently. Is there anybody here that's felt that tonight? Can I point something out to you? Never once this week did I tell you you should be living differently. Did I pick on your behavior at all this week? No, no. But tonight, it's amazing to me that as we've looked at the cross, each one of us feels that. Do we not? Do we not? When will we learn that when we see behavioral things in the church that cause us fear and consternation, the solution is to not lift higher the law. It's to lift high the cross. Because when, when believers see the cross, it changes their life from the inside out, does it not? You said ashamed. Can I tell you what word I feel every time? Every time I look at the cross, I am overwhelmed. I look at Calvary and I look at the decisions I've made in my life. And quite honestly, 
There are things that I have done in my life, brothers and sisters, that if you knew what they were, you would lose all respect. And you wouldn't listen to a thing I've said all week. I look at Calvary and I just feel so unworthy. I honestly look at God and I say, give up heaven for someone else, God. But don't you dare do that for me. Because I'll never be worthy of that. But you know what I feel him saying every time? Herb, I didn't do it because you were worthy. I did it because I love you. And you can't change that. Lord knows I've tried. Two more. Anyone else feel anything else tonight? Broken. Generous. Anybody want to learn how to love like God does this week? Doesn't it make you want to be an imitator of Him? To go out in the world and to be in it but not be of it? Do you understand what it means? Jesus was in it, but He was not of it. And He wasn't afraid to press close to to drunkards and prostitutes and tax collectors. And I can't wait for the day when I say, is there anybody here who's a recovering alcoholic and a bunch of hands go up Sabbath morning in a church? How many would like that? And how many here are a recovered drug addict and there's hands that go up? And I say, is there anybody here who God has saved you from a life of prostitution and there's some women's hands that go up? You wouldn't find it in our church today. Today you say, is there anybody who's gotten the victory over cheese? And some hands go up. And I don't know how we got there, but it's messed up. Jesus came to save sinners. But it's only going to happen. It's only going to happen as we keep our eyes fixed on what you've caught glimpses of this evening. Amen. This is the only way we can be in the world, but not of it. Because, ha, oh, sometimes it's in the church, but not of it. Are you hearing me? Are you hearing me? Sometimes it's not in the world and trying to remain other-centered and loving towards those in the world that have wronged you. Sometimes it's easier to love the heathens than it is to love the church members sitting right beside you, the bro- your brother and sister in Jesus. But take your eyes off of that. Don't let your love grow cold because of the self-centeredness of others. Be in the midst of it and gather warmth from their coldness. Gather strength and courage from their cowardice. Do you know the statements I'm quoting? Keep your eyes on a love that would not let you go. Someone said to me, Herb, how do you remain so uncritical of the system? Because I'm not in it for the system. My eyes are fixed in a different direction. And that's how we all do it. Every system will always be flawed. Amen? Because the church is a hospital filled with sinners. And just because they get an administrative position doesn't mean all of a sudden they're perfect. Are you hearing me? I know some of you have expressed it this week. But the church is filled with sinners from top to bottom. And the question is, how are we going to respond to it? Will you be in it, but not of it? Will you be in it, but not of it? Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Fathers, we close tonight. I want to thank you for the cross. Thank you for your love. 
And Lord, I have to confess I'm not like that yet. I don't know that I would. Lord, I don't know that I would give up heaven for you yet. But I am thankful that you gave up heaven for me. And Lord, I want to be transformed into that kind of love. Not just love back to you, but God, I want to be transformed into love for those I come in contact with. God, please change all of us. The end of all things is at hand. Father, teach us what it means to be intense in our love for one another only in the light of how much you have loved us and revealed that to us through Calvary. God, please, from the inside out, will you change us as a people? Will you make us what you've always wanted us to be? Father, may the next 12 months, for those that have attended camp meeting here this week, May knowing you be paramount for them. May the next 12 months be filled with discovery after discovery of what is in your heart for them. Father, it is my prayer, as just as the Apostle Paul preached, that they may be rooted and grounded in love. That Christ may dwell in their hearts. That they would understand the length, the depth, the height, the breadth of the love of Christ which passes knowledge. So that they may be filled with all of the fullness of you. God, may that come true for us in this generation. In your precious name we pray. Teach us how to imitate you and live that life of love. Amen.